On the day before Halloween in 1955, socialites William and Anne Woodward returned home to their vacation home in Oyster Bay, Long Island, after attending a party in honor of the Duchess of Windsor. It was a typically cool, windy fall night for Long Island, but a string of break-ins had the neighborhood on edge. Billy and Anne, who slept in separate bedrooms, were both sufficiently nervous that they went to bed with loaded firearms. Later in the night, Anne was startled awake, saw a shadow in her doorway, and blasted her shotgun. But it was no intruder. It was her husband, wrapped in a towel after getting out of the shower. It quickly became front-page news all over the country, and Life magazine called it the shooting of the century. Anne was eventually brought before a grand jury, but not indicted, the jury seeing it as an act of self-defense and an accident. Though the world of high society was abuzz for a while and looked on Anne skeptically, eventually the Fuhrer died down. It helped that her mother-in-law stood by her and they would have weekly dinners together in the coming years. But then, on October 10, 1975, almost 20 years after the shooting, Anne Woodward took a fatal dose of Secanol, which today is the most used drug in physician-assisted suicides. Earlier that week, someone, it is still unknown who, smuggled her an early copy of that month's Esquire magazine because one of the stories was about her. It wasn't an expose or an investigative piece, but a short story called The Cote Basque, 1965 by Truman Capote. In it, Capote wrote a thinly disguised character based on Woodward named Anne Hopkins, who shoots her husband in the same manner as in the Woodward case, but with an alternative motive. Before the edition even hit newsstands, Anne was dead. And the next year, her son would commit suicide as well by jumping out the window of their family's Manhattan penthouse. And the shockwaves from the story reverberated throughout Manhattan high society. Overnight, Capote went from the toast of the town to persona non grata. It ended his literary career and sent him into a downward spiral that ended with his own death from drugs and alcohol. Hello and welcome to Annotated. I'm Rebecca Shinsky. And I'm Jeff O'Neill. In today's episode, the story of Truman Capote's fateful story, Le Cote Basque, 1965. Capote saw the story as part of the capstone of his career, which, as it turned out, it was. How is it that the most celebrated writer of his era, and possibly the most famous writer of the century at his peak, came to destroy himself so utterly? It's the story of gossipy yacht cruises, confessional lunches at French restaurants, champagne at the Ritz, and a literary betrayal the likes of which had never been seen before. This episode is brought to you by Penguin Random House Audio. Want to give audiobooks a try for your next book club pick but don't know where to start? Penguin Random House Audio provides suggested questions, discussion points, and recommended titles. Today they're recommending Gun Love by Jennifer Clement and read by Imani Parks. Pearl grew up in the front seat of a 94 Mercury. Her mother lived in the back. Their neighbors in Central Florida are residents in a trailer park who become their friends. Beautifully narrated, this audiobook is a coming-of-age story in contemporary America that will be rich for discussion. Visit tryaudiobooks.com slash bookriot and bring your book club meetings to a new level. Start listening today. Before we get to his unraveling, in fact, as a way to understand his unraveling, let's look at Truman Capote at the height of his powers, his famous black and white ball, which took place on November 28, 1968, in the ballroom of the Plaza Hotel. The event was ostensibly to honor Catherine Graham, the owner and publisher of the Washington Post, who had championed Capote early on. But really, the cause for celebration was Capote himself. In Cold Blood had just come out, and it was a smashing, unprecedented success. The true crime setup had never been attempted so audaciously and pulled off so skillfully. He was the literary sensation of his day, and after having hobnobbed and vacationed with the cream of New York society for a couple of decades, he was perfectly positioned to be America's tastemaker. 
The party was an exercise in the wielding of social capital. Anyone he invited would come, and there were no plus ones or substitutions. Either you had an invite with your name on it, or you didn't. Couples found one person invited, the other not. Royals found themselves left off the list in favor of Kansas farmers Capote had befriended. The coin of the social realm was Capote's favor. Folks actually hired public relations firms in New York to get an invitation to the black and white ball. This is Danny Heitman, who writes for The Advocate. And also, in the event that they would not get an invitation to create some fanciful, defensible reasons why they did not get an invitation. So there was just intense competition to to get admitted to the ball. There's a story that a cab driver picked up a jet-setting couple at JFK a few days before the ball and asked, so are you guys going to Truman's shindig? It is wild to think that of all the fancy parties that have been given in New York in the last century, almost all of them have been forgotten, at least to the public, but not the black and white. We still know what it was, even now. But how did Truman Capote get to this point where he could effectively dub this mogul in and that movie star out? There had been literary successes before, but what made Capote Capote? I think it was really a testament to Capote's expert ability to manipulate the media and also to the fact that he was just, uh, he was just a sensation. He was a personality. He had a great gift for making himself a character. He was, to put it plainly, just about the most charming son of a gun to ever tip a glass. And he worked at it. For example, George Plimpton recalled that before going out on social occasions, Capote would practice which stories he would tell and to whom. For him, social interaction was a strategy to be observed, strategized, and mastered. His whole presence seemed like a form of self caricature. He had this extremely high-pitched, effeminate voice. He was a very small man. He had very elaborate mannerisms, the way he would roll his eyes. And so you had this man who was an intensely theatrical presence. At the same time, he had this great gift for sublimation of being able to blend into the woodwork. And because of that, people seemed empowered to be themselves. He was both court jester and confidant. He was so entertaining that of course you would invite him to lunch, then to your party, then to go yachting with you for a few weeks, and then he charmed your friends and their friends and lunched and yachted with them. And while you talked, he was listening and taking notes. Though, like the good new journalist he was, he didn't get out a notepad. He had practiced taking mental notes since his early days reporting so as not to remind people that he was always, always listening. But he was no dormouse. In fact, his charm offensive was more about shock and awe. To me, what was so fascinating about him is his unbridled audacity that he is an overtly gay man. He is flamboyantly gay. He apparently makes no effort whatsoever to sublimate that aspect of his character. He goes out to you know, the Kansas and a very conservative, you know, community and just basically says, this is who I am. Even in Manhattan, you know, in, ni- in the 1960s, you still have people raiding gay bars. His oversized personality had a disarming quality that was all the more powerful because of just how daring it was. It could be a very compromising thing because people would reveal their innermost uh, life to Truman Capote and he ended up using it as material and answered prayers. Long before the success of In Cold Blood, Capote had the idea for a book, which from the beginning he had called Answered Prayers. 
It would be an artistic albatross for the last 30 years of his life. And the seeds of the book were planted in his early excursions with the rich and famous. His first notes in 1958 for answered prayers were really just a list of eight names. And only one of those names was underlined. Anne Woodward. The Woodward shooting had only happened three years prior, and whispers about what really happened were still in the air. And for Capote, a true crime mystery mixed with a story of high society was too much to ignore. He knew there was a story there. Anne Woodward, who was born as Evangeline Crowell in Pittsburgh, Kansas, had caught the eye of William Woodward Jr., the heir to a banking empire, while working as a showgirl at a Manhattan nightclub called Fifi's Monte Carlo. Like Truman, she had come from nothing to the upper reaches of the social world. He from the rural South, her from the rural far Midwest. And Capote had heard rumors that Anne, still then Evangeline, had a teenage marriage that had never officially been annulled. And so the story went that her marriage to William Woodward was actually bigamous. And in this version of that fateful night in October 1955, it wasn't about a burglar, it was about William confronting her about this previous marriage, which led to Anne, whose temper was well known amongst her circle, shooting William in a fit of guilty rage. That version, with a few of the details changed but still obvious to anyone who knew the Woodward story, is what Capote recounted in La Cote Basque 1965. And it was a bombshell with concussion waves that even Capote would not withstand. This episode is brought to you by Penguin Random House Audio. As the premier publisher in the audiobook industry, Penguin Random House Audio is dedicated to producing top quality audiobooks written and read by the best in the business. Today, they're recommending The Pisces, written and read by Melissa Broder. Lucy has been struggling to write her dissertation for nine years, so when she finally hits rock bottom, she flees to California to dog sit for the summer. One night, she meets an eerily attractive swimmer at the beach, and her entire understanding of love changes. Hearing the author read her own work will be an added conversation starter for this quirky piece of fiction. Visit tryaudiobooks.com slash bookriot for more book club suggestions and other titles from Penguin Random House Audio. When the Cote Basque 1965 appeared in Esquire 1975, it was presented as an excerpt of Capote's forthcoming book, Answered Prayers. But by then, the story was almost a work of historical fiction. The moment he was writing about was already gone. This isn't just a story about a lunch at a fancy restaurant. It is about a specific moment at a very specific restaurant, La Cote Basque. La Cote Basque was opened in 1958 by Henri Soulet, who already headlined New York's fine dining world with his famed Le Pavillon. In the seven years between its opening in 1958 and the setting of La Cote Basque 1965, the restaurant had come to represent something very specific. A man might take his wife to La Cote Basque, but the other woman in his life he'd take to Le Pavillon, which surprises me because I would have thought it would be the reverse. Mm. This is Paul Friedman, professor of history at Yale and the author of 10 Restaurants That Changed America. La Cote Basque was supposed to be fun. On the other hand, Le Pavillon was supposed to be the more big deal restaurant. It wasn't quite that La Cote Basque was a budget restaurant by any means, mm -hmm. but it was as close to casual as uh, that sort of person would get. By choosing lunch and setting it at La Cote Basque, Capote was setting his story at a collision of fashion and informality. The key thing in this is that it's women and it's lunch. Places where wealthy women or women with wealthy husbands hang out. For them, these kinds of luncheons are paradoxical. These are informal and yet fashionable, casual yet still part of social performance. And Capote was a paradox in these settings, welcome in society, but not really part of it. 
Someone you could be seen at a table with, but not a mogul or banker. Not a husband or a suitor, but also not another woman. It was an in-between place in this social world, and it is where Capote thrived, at least for a while. By the time the story comes out in 1975, it was clear that 1965 was the beginning of the end for a particular moment for New York society. Post-Kennedy, with still the hangover of the glamorous and francophile White House of the Kennedys, and not yet completely engulfed by Vietnam or the racial riots. It's an era of new wealth, rapid economic growth. It's an era of uh, what used to be called glamour stocks. It's a little bit like Bonfire of the Vanities, but in a, a more a stodgy and establishment age. Certainly, it has a glow before the disaster, before the Depression or before the war. And Capote loved the glow, but he also wanted to expose it, to show that this upper class had just the same foibles and sins as the rest of us. And to do that, he just had to get an in, because once he got in, he could hear it all. Everyone knows sort of where everyone else hangs out. They all live on the Upper East Side. There's no other acceptable neighborhood. And everybody, as you see from the story, knows a lot about each other's supposed secrets. And it was at places like Lakote Basque with women like Lady Ina Coolberth, the main character of Lakote Basque 1965, that Capote got the inside story. The story itself is simple. Lady Ina Coolberth spots her friend P.B. Jones, who Capote admitted is a version of himself, and they go to lunch. In the course of their meal, Lady Coolberth dishes. And one of her central stories is that of the Woodwards. It's this kind of lunch Capote had dozens, maybe hundreds of times, maybe even thousands of times, with people who up to the moment Lacote Basque was printed would have called Capote their friend. But that was now all over. Doors that had been opened to him one moment were now closed. Heck, he had been holding those doors. Decades-long friendships were over. Gloria Vanderbilt, in a feeling that was shared by many of her peers, said that if she ever saw Capote again, she would spit on him. Babe Paley, who had a character based on her up here in Lakote Bass, said this, I thought of Truman then as someone who had died. I cut him out of my life completely. Woodward's suicide was just part of it. Many thought she finally got the justice she deserved, though they felt terrible for Esther Woodward, her mother-in-law, who had stood by her for so long. No, they were mad because they had been betrayed. Capote wasn't their friend, their peer. He was a spy. A spy who would trade their trust for material. And like all discovered spies, he was banished. And I have to say, it's not all that surprising, right? But one person was surprised by this instant ostracism. Capote himself. He complained publicly that everyone knew he was a writer, and what did they expect? His actions around answered prayers, though, indicated more ambivalence. He believed it would be his masterpiece, yet he never seemed to work on it. He mentioned it to his friends and fellow writers all the time, but let very few of them look at any of it. And he kept inflating its important in his own mind, and to his publisher. He first got a $25,000 advance from Random House for it in the early 1960s. On the strength of his reputation and his soaring goals for the book, he got a Goliath $350,000 from 20th Century Fox for the movie rights without showing them a single sentence. And he kept doubling down. When he didn't deliver the manuscript the first time, he bought time by promising to write another book too, and Random House increased his advance to $100,000. And he did the same thing again, getting Random House to agree to an advance of $1 million for a multi-book deal including answered prayers with a deadline of March 31st, 1981, a delay of more than 20 years. 
In short, he had staked his literary and financial future on answered prayers. He said that he thought it would be his masterpiece and several times compared himself to Proust and answered prayers to remembrance of things past. But the thing was, he couldn't write it. And it sat and sat for the next decade. Deadline after deadline flew by, but still no book. Just a few chapters and those he started publishing in Esquire, beginning with Lacote Basque, 1965. But it was a piecemeal release. Were these supposed to be excerpts to promote the forthcoming book? Unlikely, as there was really no book. But then why this half measure of publishing just pieces? The two dilemmas I think he found himself in with answered prayers is he knew that it would be very, very difficult to top the success of In Cold Blood. And I think that was paralyzing for him. And the second conflict he had with answered prayers is, I think that on some level he knew that it was an act of betrayal to his friends. And I think that was the cause of of the delay in bringing it to fruition. I think he knew he had a loaded revolver in that novel, and he just did not want to pull the trigger. And it was a revolver that was pointed, in some cases directly, and in other cases indirectly, at almost everyone he knew, including Capote himself. Capote never explicitly said that his goal was to infiltrate high society so that he could expose it, but it was clear that he wanted to write about it even as he was ascending to its highest heights. He wrote in a letter, I am the only person in this country who could write this book, the only person. My whole life has been spent developing this technique, the style, and the nerve to write this thing. It is the reason d'etre of my entire life. But by putting himself in position to write it, he had become one of the lotus eaters, and now was faced with an impossible catch-22. Publish what he had written and destroy his place in the world, or not publish it and fail at what he believed to be his central reason for being an artist at all. The precariousness of this position was obvious to him even before the storm came. Four years before Le Cote Basse 1965 came out, he said on the Dick Cavett show that answered prayers would be his posthumous novel. And quote, either I'm going to kill for it or it's going to kill me. Turned out he was right on both counts. He knew that he had to betray his friends. And it was an uncomfortable thing for him to acknowledge, which is why there's so much of a spirit of denial in his response to it. I think also there's a deep sense of myopia and claustrophobia in the novel that really in a very stark way, reflects how narrow his world had become. By publishing pieces, Capote managed to reap the worst of both outcomes. He provoked the wrath of his social world, which sent him into a downward spiral that made finishing the book impossible. And not finishing the book meant failing. And the consequences were disastrous. George Blimpton put it plainly. Answered prayers was the end for him. He never recovered from it. On his deathbed, in a haze of alcohol and drugs, Capote's speech was jumbled, but he repeatedly mentioned both his mother and Answered Prayers. The title of of Answered Prayers was drawn from St. Teresa's admonition, more tears are shed over answered prayers than unanswered ones. And in Capote, you have a man who ostensibly got just about every prayer or wish or desire that that he ever embraced, answered. In 
This episode of Annotated was written and produced by me, Jeff O'Neill. Sound editing and design by Kyle O'Neill. You can find links in the show notes for further reading about Truman Capote and Answered Prayers, including Danny Heitman's profile in Humanities Magazine. And for all you nerds out there, we're giving away the 10 best books about books from 2017 just for Annotated listeners. Find the link in the show notes or go to bookriot.com slash annotated2, that's the number two, to enter for a chance to win. And if you like Annotated and want there to be more, the best, the most helpful thing you can do right now is to go rate and review it on Apple Podcasts. And telling other people to listen to it doesn't hurt either. Until next time, thanks for listening. 